This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical or legal advice. Always follow your local policies, procedures, and protocols when functioning in your respective profession. Additionally, the views expressed by the speakers and owners of this podcast are their own and do not represent the views of their respective employers. Listener discretion is advised. Alert Medic 1 response. Ken, Josh, and Mustafa here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic 1 podcast. Back to the Lord Medic One podcast today. You've got me, you got Moose, and we've got our guest, okay, medic Mike Ruccio. Hello, uh, down from Delaware virtually. And uh, Mike, if you'd like to go ahead and introduce yourself, even though probably most people know who you are that follow us as well. Um, I'm Mike, I've got the world's okayest medic podcast. I work full time as a uh, I call it a real medic in pennsylvania in a single medic chase car and then my other job is i'm a flight medic uh i was a flight medic for 10 years did it full time for most of that and then decided to keep it real and go back to the street full time so here i am i I gotta ask about your system that you work in so your single medic chase crews that's a lot of what uh, i do still prn so how does that work like are you are your ambulances like paid volunteer like how's that work uh the standard in the area is they're they're mostly paid crews but they're employees of volunteer fire departments which i don't exactly understand but that's what they do we fully understand we uh we come from a county that that was the standard up until what uh seven months ago if yeah exactly yeah and certainly in the past few months is where this done a drastic change of gone to almost completely paid to the point where uh, volunteer departments are voting out their EMS leadership. <laughs> um, oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um, yeah, um, yeah. I, I'll just keep it there. I'm not a fan of the politics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it certainly gets interesting. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'll, I'll be the first one to say I've started as a volunteer. I'm still a Same. volunteer, but Same, but um, uh, it, it certainly there's realities that aren't conducive to best uh, practice when it comes to medicine. So I think we can all agree there. So uh, uh, Josh, go ahead, bud. So uh, thanks Mike for coming on. Um, So when we were arranging this, we were trying to figure out a topic and just coincidentally, uh, Mike posted a uh, post about Esmolol and it's used for current uh, refractory V-fib and pulses to be tacked and how there is research, but there's not a whole lot of data there. And that coincided with Moose telling me that uh, there is a protocol change coming sometime in the future in Maryland, uh, possibly. It's not been totally voted on yet, uh, but it is in the proposal process of adding Esmolol and making some changes to our pulseless uh, VTAC and VFIT algorithm uh, in the realm of Esmolol, electrical delivery, and how much FE we're going to be giving these patients. So thought... What a great topic to talk about uh, because it might be coming to the streets here in Maryland, which is a lot of our audience, but also could be making its way around the uh, nation soon into other jurisdictions. So, um, Mike, do you want to lead off with 
uh, the, uh, I guess, the studies that you found that prompted the post and what brought it about for you? Yeah, well, what brought it about for me is I'm a whacker. I usually am listening to the radio on downtime at work. Everybody makes fun of me for it. And I listened to a, uh, a radio report to the hospital, and it's this 30-some-year-old dialysis patient who they've shocked like 480 times. It's refractory V-fib. Um, and they said, we've given Esmolol. And this was a program not in my jurisdiction. I was like, Esmolol? Like, why the hell would you give Esmolol for V-fib? And I sort of remembered hearing something about that before. So I looked it up, and sure enough, Esmolol for V-fib. The thought is that... Hold on, I'm pulling my stuff up here. The thought is that in a V-fib state, especially a refractory V-fib state, you have this catecholamine surge that is making the heart irritable. And the heart's dying, so it starts to fib. You know, I'm doing like a hand motion, but it's not like people can see this. It starts to fibrillate. And if you give a beta blocker, you know that beta one is cardiac stimulation, cardiac output. It's going to reduce the force of contraction. It's going to reduce the rate and it's going to reduce the electrical dromotropy. I can't think of the definition off the top of my head, but if you reduce that sympathetic stimulation, you might just get the heart to start beating better. Now, I have to ask before we proceed, if we're worried about the sympathetic stimulation worsening the V-fib, why are we giving a beta blocker and we're giving epi every three to five minutes? Yeah, no, that's certainly a good point. Yeah, for the for the Maryland, uh, and we'll get into this a little bit, for the Maryland uh, protocol proposal specifically, it's one time that you give it. If the epinephrine, I should say, uh, one milligram, if they re-arrest and then you get ROSC, you can give up to one additional dose. Um, after ROSC, if they re-arrest, you can give one additional dose. But certainly, I, I get your point. You're kind of like, uh, what is it? Putting your foot on the gas and the brake at the same time. Cor- correct. I, um, yeah. You know, I'm not opposed to the whole one milligram one time. I listen to, I recommend everybody listen to it. I like the guy, Corey Slovis. He's a medical director for, I want to say Nashville or Memphis. I've been listening to him for eons. And he was on the Resus X. Do you guys follow Critical Care Now, Haney Malamat? I think I've seen it. And I know who you're talking about because I just listened to your recent episode on the way home tonight. And okay. I need to look up Clovis on my, for my yeah. commute the next <laughs> Yeah, he's, Haney's phenomenal. He's actually a doc at the hospital where I, where my flight team is. But anyway, he has this conference. It's a virtual conference. And being foam ed, he posts the lectures on YouTube. So Corey Slovis gave this lecture. I think everybody should watch it. It's only like 18 minutes. It's very to the point, which is why I like him. And he goes over drugs and cardiac arrest. And he said that in non-shockable rhythms epinephrine does increase survival which kind of goes against what you've been hearing for a while that you know epinephrine doesn't increase survival it increases ROSC but not out of hospital survival but in non-shockable rhythms he the research he put out there and I have no reason to think he's lying because he's great that in non-shockable rhythms epi is a good go-to 
Now, if you're giving, he does say, if you're giving seven, eight epis and they remain asystolic or in PEA, they're dead. But I like the one milligram dose. He did say, however, that in shockable rhythms, epi is associated with worse neurologic outcomes. So you do get ROSC at higher rates, but the neurologic, you basically made a vegetable and that's not good for anybody. Yeah, and to, um, with your question, Mike, so, you know, prepping for this today while I'm sitting, uh, adjuncting and I'm sitting next to one of my partners for my shift and he's like, Esmeral, he's like, I think I've heard of that before. And he, you know, does a quick stat for a look at it. And, you know, he's like, man, this is great. It's used for all these things. And you get to contraindications, bullet three, uh, don't use with epi, nor epi or dibutamine or, uh, dopamine. And it's like, uh, what? Now, is that a is that a drug interaction thing or is that like a compatibility in the lines thing? I think it was a drug interaction. And so it's like, so we're going to give Esmolol. Now, granted, yeah, we're giving way less epi than we were before, you know, in this proposed algorithm. But then our post-ROSC um, package right now in the state includes uh, epi, as in epi drip if we have uh, geez, hypotension. And next year is going to involve Levofen, both which are going to be working against something that we possibly just recently gave in our chain of care, because it is late in the game for our algorithm. So it's like, where where is this, like Moose said, where is this balance between that brake and the gas pedal at the same time? So, Yeah, yeah definitely. It, I could see them putting that uh, a contraindication is with epi or nor epi. Simply... I don't know. I'm just speculating here simply to prevent somebody from erroneously giving the medication. Cause if let's say, let's take, let's look at not cardiac arrest. Let's say you have an ICU patient, they're in septic shock and you've got them on an epinephrine drip and a levo drip to vasoconstrict and keep their blood pressure up. And you, somebody notes that their heart rate is like 130 and they're an AFib or their heart rate is, you know, 140 and it's sinus tack and they're going, oh my God, I got to slow that heart rate. Let me give Esmolol. Well, the intensivist is going to want to shoot you for giving something that's going to counteract the pressors that are trying to maintain a blood pressure. That's just my speculation. But yeah, yeah. I, I think you're definitely onto something. As you said before, the, the data does kind of suck. Um, the data is promising, but I BS'd my way through statistics in grad school and in college. So I, I'd be lying if I told you I was able to like crunch the numbers and really uh, be able to speak fluently on the statistical analysis in these studies. But they say that they're not statistically significant and that they were, as you said, Josh, very, very small study populations. And also they were retrospective. They were going back and looking at patients got small. It wasn't a double-blind randomized control trial, which all the EBM nerds say is the gold standard. And I say that jokingly. It is the gold standard. But, yeah, there is a scarcity of data to support it. I'd like to see them, this is just my fantasy world, do a study where they only give one epi or completely take epi out and just give the Esmolol and see how that works. Yeah, so the paper you guys are talking about is from 2022 by Patrick Attal, and it was a the two arms. Uh, hold on, I'm pulling it up right now. I believe it was 63 patients in the 
Yes, yeah, 63 patients who received Esmolol versus 70 patients. Um, and this, it's interesting because it was a protocol change. So the 70 patients were prior to the uh, protocol change. Um, and although it did show a, a higher rates of ROSC in the Esmolol group of 38% versus 24%, uh, this did not reach statistical significance. And that's huge. Uh, and without going into, uh, well, no, never mind. We'll, we'll just leave it there. I just, uh, I, all right. Yeah. So it, yeah, it just, yeah. to me, I didn't really, it's just not there. The evidence isn't there. It's just interesting to me. I mean, I'm not saying it's not, I'll, I'll be interested in seeing how it goes from here, at least in Maryland. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and specifically in the, the protocol, it does state that it's going to be a hundred percent review, um, by all, uh, EMS operational medical directors. So every county, their medical directors going to have to 100% review any chart that involves Esmolol, uh, that uh, involves DSED, uh, or sorry, double sequential uh, defibrillation. And I'm uh, not sure about vector change, maybe vector change, because um, that is part of this. Uh, but we've been doing that here in my agency for uh, about coming up on a year. And vector change? Yep. Okay, uh, have you guys, we don't do any of that in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is probably one of the least progressive, I shouldn't say that, but it's one of the least progressive EMS states in the country. Thank God we got rid of the dinosaur medical director who took the philosophy that, you know, it's my job, literally said, it's my job to protect the public from EMS. You know, there's freaking leadership there. And we got somebody who's very pro-paramedic, very progressive, and wants to institute a whole bunch of changes, but it's just navigating through the red tape uh, Dr. right yeah i've never yeah, met yeah. the guy uh a lot of guys in the next county over in lancaster county speak extremely highly of him and i've never heard someone say anything bad about him so i trust my colleagues in lancaster county and if they vouch for him you know i'm i'm willing to give them the fair shake and the chance yeah not um, to take off on a tangent yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. No, you're good. I was go just going to say, that's a really long-winded way of saying that we don't do double sequential defib or vector change where I am yet. Anyway, I, I, I – Now, what I was going to say was I hope that what it, we're hearing the last, like, you know, death rattles of this, like, generation of medical director that just doesn't trust the people that they're, like, helping oversee. I hope we're seeing the last of it. Uh because certainly here in Maryland, I think we're blessed for the most part for having medical directors that are a lot of them being prior EMS uh, or folks that are certainly vested uh, in their programs to the point where they care about the folks and often have very good professional relationships with them and see um, the benefit of having a paramedic that uh, functions at the top of their license. Right. So, yeah, no, that's crazy to me that up and, you know, up until very recently, uh, Pennsylvania had a, uh, was it a state medical director, I guess? State medical director. Yeah. Um, that's a shame. That's a shame. Yeah. I, he was an EMT before. I, I honestly think that he got bullied by a bunch of paramedics when he was a 18 year old EMT and then became a doctor and was like, I'll show them. <laughs> but yeah. Um, mm. So have you had success with the, uh, vector changes? New Jersey's uh, so starting that. So I personally have had one success. Um, 
And I, I've kind of talked to you a little bit about that um, via mm-hmm. DMs. Like it was a, it was also a CPRIC, so CPR induced consciousness, pacing, ketamine. Um, it was a witness to rest. It was a STEMI transport that coded in front of the first medic. I was the second medic, and it was a whole like doing everything that we're supposed to do by the book. You know, stop, work the guy then go from there instead of this old uh, way of doing things. Even Moose probably came in at the point where we were still hanging on to the top rail and pushing with one hand. Oh, yeah. I physically have done that. Yeah, I think we've all done that too many times and now looking back regrettably too many times. Um, But uh, and so we did vector change. He was V-fib from the start. We just knew we're like, hey, let's just set it up because we know after three you're going to need to do this. And uh, we did manual compressions all the way up till we did our vector change uh, shocks. And then we put on the Lucas after that. But it was after the fourth one that we had the induced consciousness. We got the ketamine, had a fifth shock, and then we had a wide bradycardic that we paced. Ended up um, having a fully neurointact discharge uh, two weeks after the event. He got a total of about an hour plus of, of CPR. Um, and the doc's like, that's what happens when you produce the brain for an hour. Um, and so yeah, it, it was a, a crazy, crazy call all around, but great outcome uh, and really enforced the fundamentals of what we're supposed to do. Good compressions, appropriate defibrillation and the appropriate application of the right medications at the right times. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, County-wide, going back to the what'd you say county-wide i don't know the data i know it's been okay. done at other times but i don't know what our rosk and neurointact from vector change is yeah it looks like the vector change is better than the dual dis, uh dual sequential defibrillation i've got something pulled up here uh from one of the em blogs and it talked about how um there's still there's a paucity of data, you know, just like the Esmol, the data is not that great. There's not a ton of it, but it is promising in vector change. However, they write the double sequential defibrillation probably does not really do anything. Uh, they said there was uh, they said they found no benefit with statistically non-significant trend towards harm. So. Okay. Interesting. Know. What's their? Uh, do you yeah, have their citation? Yeah, I'll I look it do. up. Okay. Um, Ross twenty six. Right, Texas, the dose VF trial found D, uh, D said, or sorry, double sequential um, has better ROSC and neurointact than vector change. Oh, really? So, I'm not familiar with that study. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Doctor Texas out of uh, Vancouver. Uh, he's in Canada. Uh, they did a study that started before um, COVID. It got interrupted by COVID, and they had to stop the study. So they didn't get the full um, catchment that they wanted. They got like 400 patients out of that. Um, they split it into three arms. Uh, one was standard placement of pads. One was vector change pads, and one was DSED. Um, and the numbers are promising. I, I know which study you're talking about, Mike, because I remember – 2016 that's when i was coming out of uh paramedic school and i remember hearing about it 
I think Wake County was doing it because Wake County was super progressive back in you know, the mid-2010s, and I'm sure they still are. And they were doing it, but all the data was like, oh, it's, it's the same. It's the same ROSC. It's the same NeuroTech as we're getting already. Um, and I think it was just like it was a super small um, patient population for it. They didn't get a whole lot of people in it. And even this one, the dose VF trial, one of the arguments is that it was stopped by COVID. So they didn't get their full number. So like, is it a truly good representation? Like what would have happened if they, I think they were shooting for a thousand between three hospital centers and like four or five agencies in Canada. Uh, okay. So I, so I can read the summary here. Uh, so, um, uh, by Sheldon Cheskis in the new, new England journal of medicine, 2022. Uh, so, Basically, a cluster randomized trial that they did over how many six Canadian paramedic services. Um, uh, I'll just read off the results real quick. A total of 405 patients were enrolled before the data and safety monitoring board stopped the trial because of the coronavirus pandemic. A total of 136 patients, which is 33.6 percent, were assigned to receive standard DFib versus 144 uh, were uh, assigned, that's 35.6% to receive uh, vector change defibrillation and 125 uh, to receive dual, sequ- dual sequential uh, defibrillation. Survival to hospital discharge was more common in the dual, sequ- dual sequential DSED group, I'm going to have to say that 10 times fast, than in the standard group, 30.4% versus 13.3%. And uh, more common in the uh, VC group than in the standard group. Um, uh, dual sequential defibrillation, but not vector change defibrillation, was associated with a higher percentage of patients having a good neurological outcome than standard defibrillation. So, uh, pre- pretty interesting. Or certainly pretty interesting. Yeah, I'll definitely have to read that. Yeah, it was. Um, it dropped right after the new. I want to say it dropped in like March of this year. Uh, my agency, one of the chiefs, ran into him at a conference. Was like, "Oh, I love this!" And we did a clinical practice guideline change and introduced it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's—I know we've kind of gone off of Esmolol and Epi, but it's still in the real wheelhouse of cardiac arrest. You know, it, it's crazy to see the changes that are coming. You know, um, Mike, you know, you, you definitely—I'm uh, not, not going to say you definitely, but you predate me in EMS. I predate Moose. Uh, I predate everybody, it seems like. I'm getting old, man. (laughs) Um, You know, but the changes that we've seen, you know, we we talked about how we used to do one-handed CPR hanging from the the rafters of the ambulance. You know, our main goal in cardiac arrest, it seems like, was how do we get them out of the house? It wasn't how do we perform good compressions. And through, you know, studies like uh, Dose VF, through Resuscitation Academy, through all these different avenues, we found that there's things that actually do work really well. Um, and even in that, you know, then we see some some slightly con- controversial things. So I know, Mike, you have loved to talk about uh, PARP and Airways and Dr. Wang uh. and how that study, you know, when it came out, it was just, you know, earth shattering for so many medics out there thinking, you're going to take my tube out of my hands. You can't pry it out of my cold, dead hands, you know. In the, in the words of Charlton Heston, you know, and, but it's like, no, it's, we're just looking, Hey, this is a different approach. How does this work? And now we're finding out, Hey, maybe the superglottics that that is suggesting isn't great in certain types of arrest. The ones that are going to get ECMO 
end up not having good outcomes when they start with an SGA compared to the ET arm. Yeah, and it, it's crazy to see where things are constantly shifting, and that's kind of like this thing with Esmol. Esmol, these studies said, hey, it might work, but it's not statistically significant, but there's a chance. So are we going, is it going to do good things when we implement it? We're going to have to find out. You know? Yeah, exactly. Since you brought up part, I'm pulling up my stuff on part and the airways or airways two trial, whichever one it is. Um, if you look at the numbers, here we go. If you look at the numbers, I think that they oversold how good SGAs not are, how good they think SGAs are. So if you look at, uh, if you look at the data in airways, ah, crap, I don't have it off the top of my hand, but it was something like 15 versus 18%, which yes, I understand like nerd statistics. That's sig statistically significant, but you know, uh, passing the bullshit test, you kind of got to wonder, you know, is that really a huge thing? And also there wasn't that much, difference between survival and neuro outcomes between intubation and SGA. Now, that being said, I have been on and old medic Mike has been a participant on plenty of cardiac arrests where it's all right, stop compressions. I got to get this tube. I got to get a good visual. And it's, you know, you delay everything else to get this damn tube, which in the grand scheme of things in like 99 out of 100 cardiac arrests is not going to save the patient's life. Uh, so I, as much as it pains me to say, do we need to be intubating all of our cardiac arrests? Uh, I don't think so. I think that we will get laser focused on that tube. Now, if you have good pit crew CPR and you have good resources and you have someone that can keep the compressions going and minimize all that and you know use good crew resource management if you get somebody that's good at intubating and they can drop a tube while all this is going on then yeah i mean by all means do it uh but yeah i think that you could make uh, i feel like i'm rambling here but i feel like you could make an argument for both sides yeah i think that the there should be a de-emphasis on intubation but i don't think that uh you know, SGAs are the answer. And you brought up this Minneapolis study that uh, came out this year. It was, if people aren't familiar with it, it was patients that they looked at patients that were being delivered to this one particular university hospital to get eCPR, ECMO CPR with VA ECMO. And the patients that were a candidate for VA ECMO, they had much worse abgs lactates um so much so and i thought this was pretty significant that they put in the study they put in the words uh asphyxial physiology and then they put it in the title so that's pretty damning damning now our medical director at impact ems sal Rezai, he's fantastic and he's like a i mean this guy he could talk your ear off about this stuff for the next 12 hours and he'd be interesting to listen to the whole time. He says it's an interesting study, but he's like, this is one study. This is one specific patient population of patients that are going to be getting ECMO. You know, you can't just say that SGAs are not good. And he's got a point, but being a paramedic who is not a fan of Henry Wang, 
I like to throw a bone to these to these people in Minneapolis. You know, it's, it's it's interesting you say that. So part of the protocol uh, change that's going to be like uh, like Josh said earlier, not uh, confirmed yet, but if passed by the EMS board, is eCPR, uh, and it'll be the inclusion criteria. There's a certain amount of inclusion criteria, but one of them is being 15 minutes within an eCPR capable facility. Um, and real quick, sir- Moose, yeah, go ahead. one of the other criteria is an advanced airway, but it doesn't specify uh, SGA or ET. That, well, that's what I, exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 you're fine, you're fine. Yeah, so and it's interesting. I, I will say this from a – not to call either of you guys old uh, because I just turned 30, so I guess I'm not that old. Uh, yeah, that <laughs> I'm 41. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I split the difference here. I, I got to <laughs> say I, I have seen a change from the folks that I used to ride with um, some of the folks, I should say, not Ken, uh, when I was in paramedic school versus the people that are now riding with me. Certainly, there has been a de-emphasis in ET tubes. Certainly, that you know that, and so I think there's a generational thing there. I, I like what you said, Mike, about uh, taking a step back from the ET tubes. Uh, I think we would all agree. Certainly, we have to take a step back. Period, and t- just think of these. Uh, take whether it's a cardiac arrest or a STEMI patient. Take a take an approach uh, from a clinical management standpoint and try to take a step back. Period. I think um, a lot of times, whether it's an EMT or a paramedic who's just sending the entire volume of a BVM in, or it's someone that's just uh, you know, hey, stop compressions real quick so I can get this tube, or any number of like bad medicine things. Um, yeah, it's just bad juju. I, I just, uh, I, I've certainly, th- one of our, our executive director uh, um, at MIMS presented on a few, di- I forget what his topic was on, but he basically w- one of the things he identified is uh, subaglottic airways are not harmless. You know, uh, a lot of the adverse events that are occurring are because of poor placement or placement is fine. They're just not doing the job effectively. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, there's I, one, I, Go ahead. Six uh, failures are underreported and approach six percent in optimal operating suite settings. Mike, when's the last time you worked in an op- optimal operating room setting? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not even. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, my last one, my last tube was uh, less than a week ago. It was on a cluttered bedroom floor that I had to shove uh, random stuff out of the way just to get to the head. Uh, in a poorly lit room that luckily my driver brought the giant spotlight that sits, you know, in one of the compartments on the engine to light up the room. Um, it was lit like an operating room after that point, but uh, that was about it. Yeah. Yeah. Moose, yeah. you brought, I like you bringing up the de-emphasis on intubation, on all skills that not aren't, not that don't have value, but that aren't the priority or could be harmful. I had it wasn't a code yet, but I had a woman last week. Uh, police had a check on the welfare call. They kicked down the door. I posted about it. She ended up having a gangrenous colostomy, and she's the one I I, I literally puked twice on the call. It was all I felt bad for this poor lady because she was dying. Ooh. She's alone. She uh, she was tracking. She was unresponsive, but she was tracking with her eyes, and she was kind of softly moaning. So I I. I do think she was aware of what was going on and she's laying there and we cut her clothes off and we all were like, Bleh! like, Bleh! like puking everywhere. I felt bad for her, but she's got a uh, shock index, like hugely high. She's um, 
got a blood pressure of 50 systolic. And I was telling my paramedic student, we had a 45-minute transport to the hospital from where we are. And I told my student, 10 years ago, we would have murdered this patient because we would have been like, she's unresponsive. She's not protecting her airway. A comes before everything else. We got a tuber. So you push a sedative. You're going to knock out her sympathetic drive. And not, let's say you just did it without drugs. Let's say you just raw dog the tube, which you totally could have done with her. Which you certainly start, people used to do. Yeah. 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 You start pushing air via positive pressure ventilation. You're increasing the intrathoracic pressure and you're compressing the vena cava and you're going to tank her blood pressure that way. So as much as I wanted to tube her and on paper, she needed to be intubated. No doubt about it. You know, jumping right to that as the priority was not the way to go. Yeah, it's it's been echoed over and over again uh, lately on social media and in CE and FOMED and everywhere. You know, uh, Lindsay talked about it very blatantly when she was on our the first time she came on with us, but resuscitate before you innovate, resuscitate before you do anything. Like, there's so many other things like that you need to make sure that the patient is a viable candidate for these higher level interventions. I said mm-hmm. at that time, and if, if we don't, you know, um, as my other instructor said today, I think you said it, Mike, I think Moose, you said it too. We've all said it, prepare for the clean kill because that's what you're going to do. Yep. And um, that's not our business. Our business is attempting to stabilize and get to a high level of care because, you know, at, at times there is much more that the ICU and a surgical suite can do that is going to help some of these patients. You know, Mike, in your, your case, I think you said there wasn't much that was going to help this patient in the end because of what was found ultimately. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So it's, it's one of those things like taking a step back once again, take a step back and realize what the patient truly needs in the time and not what is the cool skill, what is the aggressive skill. Oh, oh shit. We talked about this, I think, almost a year ago. Um, measured aggressiveness. Like, don't be aggressive, just be aggressive. Figure out what's going to be best and use it appropriately. Um, but Yeah, from my perspective as a flight medic, I go on scene flights and there are plenty of times where they have RSI'd a patient and they tell me, they give me the report and what they found. And my partner and I are like, why the hell did they innovate this person? You know, and I look back, you know, 10 years ago, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I would have probably been that medic who was dropping the tube because, you know, got to be aggressive, got to secure the airway, secure them for transport. Um, yeah, you know, as my medical director on the flight team said, he used to be a medic. He was like, you know, he goes, the thing that's great about medicine is is that it's always evolving. He said, but the thing that sucks about that is you realize how many people you killed (laughs) as it's evolving. I was like, that's pretty profound. I I said it to the class today. I was like, look, you know, I got another 20 years on the job. I I know when I'm going to retire and you guys probably have about the same amount of time as a medic if you stay a medic the whole time. The things you're going to see us change into are crazy. And the things that we're going to discount that we're talking about today in the next 20 years, it's going to happen. And just be just wait for this water. And not to mention, 
shit. You know, um, Moose, I think you said it once. I can't remember who said it. Someone once said, like, how fast medical research turns into actual, like, patient care. It, like, takes, like, five years or something like that. Yeah, but five to ten years, yeah, from initial but, concepts, yeah. But that has changed. It's getting quicker. Exactly, yeah. Quicker by the, by the like, the minute, essentially. You know, the things that you, all three of us did, you and me, Mike, because, um, you know, I am started in 2007. I know you were, you know, what, four or five years prior to that, Mike, and me, the things that we, yeah, the, the things that we did back then that we would never touch now. Oh, and it's like more IV wide open. Until they yeah. bleed clear, right? I've heard the horror stories. Uh, yeah. So the quote, Josh, that was t- uh, mentioned, and I'm trying to remember the exact quote, was it was um, one of the Mayo brothers, uh, one of the physicians said that, and I'm blanking on the quote, but basically he said that the the, the, t- the total knowledge of medicine has gone to the point where no one physician can get to have all the knowledge that there was, right? And it, basically he was talking about the need for specialties. And... Um, extrapolating on that and i'm blanking on the exact quote here but um how it connects to this yeah i mean certainly 10 20 30 years ago uh and from it did take five to ten years right for that uh from initial research to uh management uh, actual patient affecting patient management but look at the speed of information change there can be a bomb going off in uh i don't know hong kong and we know immediately you know i mean The, the flow of information period has increased to the point where our practices changing effectively. You know, I, I can't help but think that um, all of a lot of my conversations about EMS now are through the lens of our conversation with John Moon, too. Because you, you know, Josh, you mentioned what are we going to think uh, we were doing right currently that we're going to learn that we're doing incorrectly. I want to flip the script a little bit and think what are we going to be doing now that because of whatever. Uh, systemic failures we're going to stop doing, right? Uh, so the, what do I mean by that? So a lot of the, and Josh and I know we talked about this a lot, a lot of the things that they were doing over at Freedom House was pretty solid medicine, but then something happened. The dark ages of EMS happened, I guess. I don't know. And we fell away from a lot of the good practices that they were doing there, and we're just now starting to do again. Um, so, I, I mean, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I just, I don't know. I, I guess we want to feel that it's linear, but I, a lot of times I don't think it is. No, definitely not linear. You know, I think that the you mentioned the spread of information and how quick it is. I think social media has freaking propelled this uh, because now it's it's almost like uh, I'm a big history buff. You know how uh, during the during the Reformation, the church didn't want the peasants to be able to read the Bible so it could mm-hmm. only be in Latin because they didn't want them to have this information because knowledge is power. And yep. I think that this is a modern day example of that. Before you had these bodies like the American College of Surgeons and, uh, you know, the Emergency Nurses Association, the NAEMT and the NAEMSE. I'm on their shit list now a- after today. But um <laughs> you had these bodies that for eons were the stakeholders and the decision makers. And now, you know, yeah, there's a lot of idiots like, you know, like me that are out there, you know, spewing what I think 
you know, say in my opinion. But there's also a lot of smart people who weren't part of these associations, like, uh, you know, the Haiti Malamax, the Scott Weingarts. And, you know, they show like, hey, this guy or girl, you know, they're really freaking smart and they're a professional. And, you know, maybe we should start questioning the way things have been done. So I know because human nature takes over, though, right? There is no such thing as a true objective collection of information. Human nature will always take over. There will always be in groups and out groups. And what you're describing is if you're not in the in group of X or Y group, your opinion's not going to be accounted for. They're going to say, oh, that guy, because we don't agree with him or her, uh, we're not going to. information is certainly a commodity and it's a commodity that is now much more accessible uh, than it as ever has been. Yeah. You say information is a commodity. They see it. So in EMS, I think you see it when you go to someone that isn't listening to podcasts, isn't part of, you know, doesn't have EMS social media posts in their feed. And you talk about just, I don't know, something that's going on that we're talking about today. We'll just say Esmolol. And they're like, what? We, this, this drug? What is this drug? You know, what, is, what does this do? Or, you know, some new thing that's coming about, you know, uh, not, not that he listens, but Pragmed would love to hear, you know, when Roboa was making its way around uh, social media, that it was going to be the next big thing in EMS. Yeah. And he went and talked to someone, and they were like, Roboa? And then you talk about it, and they're like, you want to do what? And you know, it's and then it in the way of a commodity, when you do come with this information and it's solid information, it's evidence-based, uh, you've got anecdotal backing to it, and you talk about it, people are like, Oh, this person should be listened to. This person I'm gonna give my time to, and I'm gonna take that information away from them. But if you don't bring that to the table, then unfortunately you're just a ahead in the crowd and i gotta say this other thing too this is definitely gonna get get us some smoke but certainly the people that are heading these organizations are um oh maybe i shouldn't uh prelude they yeah i know right um certainly they're there's a vested interest in not changing things yeah, and maybe they're just not good at the tech. And they, uh, you know, I, I gotta say the NAMT certainly probably did not expect the backlash that they were getting when they went up just you know pencil whipped a signature on a uh, letter that's saying, "Hey, we don't need paramedic practitioners." Uh, uh, yeah, uh, certainly they just maybe aren't as attuned to the uh, interwebs and social media uh, that uh, folks that are younger are. I don't know. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said about that. My uh, dad, he was a neurologist for like uh, 40 some 50 years, and he just retired a year, year and a half ago. But he said, like, he's great. He's brilliant. But he said that the technology is like, I, I just can't keep up with it. And he doesn't mean like in a clinical sense. He means like the EMR and... You know, the hospital web-based educations that he would have to do. He's like, I can't keep up with this stuff. Uh, I really think you hit the nail on the head with that. That That is, and I actually, as I've been more like pensive about thinking about this stuff as I get older. And I kind of am starting to see it now with my kids. I have a 
I have a seven year old, an eleven year old, and a twelve year old, and they look at me with the tech stuff. And I have this podcast. I got this video equipment, the microphones. Like I think I'm actually doing pretty good. And they look at me like I am an imbecile when it comes to doing this stuff. I mean, even I, I, I don't use TikTok. I don't use uh, what's another one, Josh? I don't know. Uh, I mean, you don't you don't use a whole lot of social media, Miss. Yeah, I don't. And I mean, yeah. uh, uh, and I'm just like. I don't feel like, I mean, I just turned 30. I'm not that old. Uh, and I'm like, but I look at some of my students and I'm like, what are you even talking about? It's like, they're talking about a different language. I will say that I'm a, I'm a huge open AI fan and I've been messing around with a lot of their stuff, but, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I, I, I can't help but think that because of the generational gap in technology, uh, people that are used to having these, uh, information silos where they are, they are the power. They just don't have it. And, uh, once we stop recording, Mike, I'll, I'll go into a little bit more detail. I'm like purposefully being vague here, and I apologize well, for that. My, but my yeah. my hospital system's social media is cringe. It is brutal. It's terrible. I'm not talking about politics or anything like that. It's just you look at it and you're like, oh my god, like who posted this? You know, for a multi billion dollar organization, this is the best you can do. So one of my coworkers, a young hip female, is on some committee in the hospital now to like increase the social media presence because they're finally starting to realize like, hey, we got to get up with the now. And she said a big problem that these organizations have isn't just with the tech and understanding how it works. That that whole generation thing is definitely at play. She said, but so many places are hesitant to get on board because they're consulting lawyers. And Bingo. it's like, yes, no, yes, you can't yes. post that. No, you you can't comment on that. No, you can't. And I told her, and she's like, I'm going to use this at the meeting, the next meeting. I said, running a social media post past an attorney is like running the agenda for a bachelor party past a bishop. Like, it's just going <laughs> to suck. There's not going to be a good, uh, like a good product. I mean, and a lot of times, I hate to say this, but when, a, again, my anecdotal experience, when you have someone that's litigating off of the 1970s world, yes. they're just, they just don't get it. They just don't get it. Uh, I've had an attorney ask me why we need an EMS application. They're like, why can't you just open a book? And I'm like, when I have a coding kid, I don't, I'd much rather just look at an app and calculate a drug dose on my phone instead of like... Uh, you know, rifling through a textbook just to like, you know, make sure I'm not like giving the incorrect. Obviously, I should know the dose anyway, duh. But, uh, you know, I just don't get there. When folks are litigating against a different generation, it's a, it's a, it goes back to the same point we just made. Uh, they're just not, I mean, the reality is information exchange is changing to these new platforms and we have to keep, uh, we have to keep up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, plain and simple that's why we're here like we're trying to bring this information via podcast via social media uh, both our page mike's page you know trying to get it out there and identify with those generations that we have a hard time identifying with ourselves at times and listening to and being able to understand but still like getting something out there that um you know is a bite-sized information that's going to make them want to learn more and have that information of you know a commodity, so that they can pass it on to their coworkers, you know, and 
be that, you know, that engineering of like change, I guess that, you know, be the wheels of change. And I think that that's what is driving a lot of change in EMS is that we're now getting buy-in by the lowest level field provider because they are seeing what's happening and they want to get involved and they want to know more. And they're like, well, why aren't we talking about this? Why, why is my agency still uh, hasn't gotten on board with uh, video laryngoscopy? Perfect one. You know, I, I commented on something today, um, scope of knowledge, EMS scope of knowledge. I'm sorry if I butchered your handle. Um, I'll make sure not to do it again in the future, but they, they've made a post about uh, what do you prefer, DL or VL? And it was 55% VL and 44% DL. And it, it was like, whoa, whoa, we are in 2023. Why is that DL number so high? And it's, it's because one, probably agencies don't have it, you know, the money for it, but the people aren't talking about it. And now this is getting that, that conversation going like, hey, EMS administrator, hey, supervisor, hey, captain, chief, whoever, why don't we have this? Why don't we have this piece of equipment that is, here's all the data. Let me offer it to you that shows first pass success rates go up. So. Yeah, I've, I've seen this in the uh, medical direction realm as well. So you it used to be you would say to your medical director, uh, you know, let's get ketamine. And the medical director would say, you know, no. And here's like X, Y, and Z for why we're not going to get ketamine. And you would go, all right, they're the medical director. You know, they, they know. Certainly. I mean, I'm not knocking the doctors. They have much more schooling than I do. 100%. But as you said, the lowest level of field provider can now go, well, doc, I understand that. But uh, here's these 14 blogs I read and i printed them out and uh you know i went on pubmed and i looked at the studies that they referenced and i looked at those citations and uh you make a point but this stuff doesn't kind of jive with that and i've been in that situation being that guy with the medical director and the director goes like uh now you know you could have the old guy in pennsylvania who would just be like f you i'm a doctor you're nothing just take that approach but I've had good medical directors who were like, you know what? I don't agree with you. I'm not going to do this in my practice, but you make a really good point. And ketamine is the thing I'm talking about. This is kind of the battle we did to get ketamine a few years ago. Um, the doc was like, I don't like using ketamine. I'm not going to use it, but you guys did your homework. You can use ketamine. It's like, I'm going to QA the shit out of it. He said, but you guys could use it. And we proved that we do a good job with it. So now he's totally on board with it. Yeah, certainly they used to be the information holders. Because let's not forget that journals used to be published only on paper. And the only people that could afford it were physicians, right? So let's not forget about that either. Now, 100%. Um, even, even if you, number one, they have online publications of pre-hospital emergency care, so on and so forth. But even if you don't have... Uh, a, I don't have a subscription to pre-hospital emergency care, but I guarantee you if there's anything at all worthwhile getting published, then there's a number of pages that I follow or I have colleagues that are going to bring it up, you know, and that's certainly that again, information as a commodity, more people would like, just like Josh said, at the lowest level, and I shouldn't, I guess I uh, shouldn't say lowest, uh, the folks on the ground doing the work have a lot more access than they ever had to that, uh, you know, information. Yeah. Yeah, John, and it's I making mean, um, better providers. 
Mike, yeah. I got to ask you, man. I got two questions I, I, I want to ask you. Number one, what are your thoughts on pre-hospital ultrasound? I, <laughs> I'll never say never. I will never say never. But I do routinely shit on ultrasound. I personally don't see where it's going to change anything. I guess you could make the argument that if you're in Montana and do you go four hours to the hospital the patient wants to go to or do you go four hours to a trauma center after they fell and you want to do a fast exam? Okay. Um, I know Newcastle County by me, where I live, they are doing ultrasound strictly to terminate cardiac arrests. That sounds good. Like, there's nothing wrong with it, really. But is it worth the investment? Because in 22 years of doing this, this is anecdote, I know. But I cannot think of, I have brought countless cardiac arrest patients to the hospital where they've put an ultrasound probe on and they go, yep, they're dead. I have never seen one go like, oh, look, the heart's actually moving a little bit. Like, no, they're dead. You know, I, I, the, the, the abundance of opportunities of times I've seen as well. Uh, the only one I've seen was actually uh, a week and a half ago, but there was a massive PE. So it wasn't going to do anything. The guy had multiple yeah. comorbidities, massive, probably saddle PE. But you could you actually could watch the blood circulate in the ventricles, just swirl around with these little bits of plaque, and it's like, well, this isn't going to wow. go anywhere. And I uh, guess we use it in cardiac arrest too, but it's for carotid blood flow, and that's it. We can use it for TOR, um, and not to de- delve away from Moose's second question, but uh, my. I ran into one of the Italian chiefs last night, and he goes, so what do you think we should do going forward with Pocus? And I said, well, I don't think there's any worth in fast exams. They're cool, but they take a lot of training, and they're not going to change anything for us. Uh, I think the only use outside of cardiac arrest for us in EMS right now, not to say it's going to change, because we just talked about how fast this stuff changes, um, but lung sliding for your tension pneumos and maybe guiding your uh, needle, but that breached into another topic of that I'm really happy for that if he gets on board with will be amazing. Um, and um, undifferentiated respiratory distress. Yeah, so, um, actually, a listener today sent me a DM of a case. He was like, I know you hate Pocus. He goes, and I don't hate Pocus. I have always said that I don't see how it changes anything in EMS, and I think it's a lot of mental masturbation for people. However, I am not close-minded to it, and I will be the first person to say I was wrong and say, all right, you guys were right, uh, if it does indeed to be, uh, you know, something that changes outcomes. But I did have a follower today send me a DM with a picture of the ultrasound. He said it was an undifferentiated respiratory distress patient, and he was like, look at this, clear curly B lines, or B lines that you can see and i was like well you know that does i could see the use there for it so tbd yeah Yeah, exactly it's it's one of those things that we're still figuring out in our realm it's still being figured out in the hospital like there's people that specialize in this stuff and that's all they do and even docs that go to course after course still have issues i remember my critical care um 
instructor was like, yeah, you know, I carry one, I have one, but I'll tell you, it took me hours upon hours upon hours of instruction in classes to get any good with this thing. Christiana has a whole emergency medicine fellowship for ultrasound. I mean, that tells you how intricate it is. Yeah. See, I'm like, I'm kind of with you, Mike. I'm like, this is going to sound terrible. <laughs> Bring uh, it. But I couldn't fit any more people off today, so. And I, I don't mean to, I want to make sure that my paramedic knows where the liver versus the spleen is before I put an ultrasound probe in their hand. Uh-huh. And yes, that's a little bit of hyperbole, but I want to make sure that we're sending home the basics. If we're going to spend time training Thank our folks you. on, uh, you know, like if, if we're going to spend time on um, ultrasound, which again, I'm not saying I'm not against it. I, I'm for ultrasound, but I'm also if I will be for an advanced practice paramedic who has to have a lot more education before I will be for an ultrasound uh, skill as a regular thing. Um, I don't give a shit if my paramedic can find the rare, you know, uh, if they can do a fast exam on the side of the road, if they don't know what they're looking at. I think ultrasound is becoming one of those things where we're pushing back towards the direction of technicians versus clinicians because we're sending those readings to other people. You know what I mean? Uh, and I'm not saying we don't need medical leadership and medical oversight, but goddamn, folks, like, let's get the basics under control and let's elevate the practice so that we it's not a debate if we can do any advanced skill, let alone ultrasound. I just I don't get it. I don't know where it came from. I'm I totally talking... for it. Yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. I was spent some time with a uh, EMS chief from out west. And he was telling me about all this stuff his de- their department can do. You know, oh, my God, you name it. You know, uh, just stuff you would never even think of. And you're like, oh, my God, like, how many of these do you do a year first off? But, like, also, you know, as much as I, like, crap on the medical directors, they are there for oversight. And I, you have to ask sometimes, like, what medical director is allowing this? You know, and how good is your medical direction? How involved are they if they're just like, oh, yeah, that's fine. Go ahead and do it. But then, you know, I'm hearing all these stories of how, like, the department streets are paved with gold and how. And then I start hearing about screw ups on basic calls. And it's like, you guys are so focused on trying to be the best and getting up here that your people are screwing up and like telling the chest pain patient, Oh, it's just indigestion. You probably don't need to go to the hospital. Your 12 lead was fine. Yeah, no, no, dude. I, 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 exactly. Exactly. Like, um, I don't know, man, you gotta, I'm, I'm excited to see where ultrasound goes in the next 10 years, but the way I see it, and this is going to be a little bit controversial too, uh, leading into my second question, things like RSI, Things like uh, ultrasound, things like, uh, I mean, name an advanced skill should be done by an advanced practice paramedic practitioner who has the clinical education and experience uh, to be able to safely, you know, perform those skills. Uh, so that's my second question to you. What are your thoughts on the, all the paramedic practitioner stuff going on? I like the paramedic practitioner as you described it. And it looked- 
the that guy Dave Pfeiffer is going to have a freaking cow when he heard me say that I agree <laughs> that because I did a whole thing about how I don't agree in the paramedic practitioner. But I do like that. I do. I think Canada's like that with the different levels of paramedic. And I know Texas has different levels of credentialing, but um, I, somewhat, somewhat. Yeah, it, it's it's a piece of paper, but uh, Austin, Texas is the one that has like the specific. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, there are many, not many, but there are paramedics out there that if my dad was having chest pain and the, that paramedic responded to him or my mom was having a CHF exacerbation, they're going to do fine. You know, like parents are in good hands. If they're my partner on a family trapped under a tractor trailer, we've got an RSI a kid. I'm going, Oh my God, why am I partnered with this guy tonight? I don't want him being my partner on this. There are some medics and medics will tell you this, like, Oh, you know, I'm good to a point. Um, yeah, I think for those high risk, low volume procedures, I, I think a little bit of extra credentialing is a good thing. I really do. And there has to be that critical mass of, experience right that's the biggest you know, one of the biggest things i say but no amount of experience is going to get you good medical education but no good no amount of medical education is going to get you the the lessons you learn from like 10 years of experience right you have to Correct. have both and Correct. i think that's what pas were supposed to be i think when they started they were supposed to be these combat veterans that were coming back and they had that experience now it's like oh man this pre pa program Let's, yeah. just, let's just put it out there. There's pre-PA program and bachelor uh, degree programs. Like uh, my secondary alma mater and a school that you went to as well, Moose, and I think you're doing your master's through. Yeah. Um, is has a free PA program. Oh, I didn't it's, know that. Yeah. And so it's not the people that are highly experienced. You know, when my dad got into his program, I, don't quote me on this. And I, I've said this before. I think he had 36,000 hours of patient contact time as a paramedic and a corpsman in the Navy. And at the time, a lot of people in the class had, you know, bountiful experience, nothing like that. But now it's, it's people that are coming straight out of undergrad. You know, maybe they get their year or two of experience being a, a scribe or a tech. Or, or, or like, like what, what blew my, like I worked as a pharmacy technician at CVS and that counted. And I'm like, what? I filled, literally filled medication all day Damn. and ta- had people yell at me. That's literally what I did for it, like. It's money making for these universities. It's the same with NPs. My wife will tell you she's a nurse practitioner. She said now it's your 23 year old nurse gets graduates from undergrad and goes right to NP school. And she said when she went like uh, seven or eight years ago, there were morons that they were pushing through. She's like, I, this, this one student in particular, she's like, I know she's getting 40s on the tests. She's like, because I see it. Mm-hmm. And she got pushed through. And in this world, in that world that we're describing right now, one of the top advocates for our profession is saying, "Don't we don't need a paramedic practitioner. Go be a PA or an NP. That just blows my mind. You have See, I kind of I kind of agree with that. I agree I with the practitioner as you outlined it. Yeah. The advanced procedures. Now, th- what they want to do and give people an NPI 
and you can hang a mm. shingle and see patients and prescribe drugs. I think that would be a freaking disaster. Oh, uh, I see but what I, you're saying. So like a see, I guess the way I think about it is um, so I went to England a couple of years ago. Well, I mean, I, I got a ton of family in England and one I post on Reddit. I said, hey, like I'm a paramedic from the United States. Uh, any paramedics want to meet up, like we'll trade patches and talk. And we did. And that's sort of the way they described how they run is they like will then be they'll like face not FaceTime. They'll do whatever technology they use to like talk to an advanced practice practice advanced practitioner and then they'll be able to like refuse the patient right and then write them scripts or whatever so i kind of see it in that capacity i certainly agree with you i don't think we there would be space for like a are you describing like a brick and mortar place for paramedic practitioners like i, I certainly yeah. would not be cool with that no I, I would not be cool with that i mean that's that certainly goes outside of the scope i think of ems practitioners yeah. What I do see a function at because it's it's a unique, uh, we have a unique skill set, but we also have that the the walls of our skill set. I see MIH, uh, I, I, I see you know mobile integrated health. I see value there. Oh yeah, definitely one hundred percent. I see value in going to the patient instead of the patient coming to us uh, as a practitioner yeah, and I, for the and like for advanced skills. Um, I, I think there's benefit in having it kind of like what I already said, like a small core group of people that do the skills more often than giving it to mm -hmm. anyone and everyone. Yeah. And I think that would be the same with MIH. If you want to have these community paramedics or whatever you want to call them. Uh, yeah. They're going to have that advanced skill set that the run of the mill yeah. 911 line paramedic doesn't have. Like, you know, you got an abscess on your ass, you know, we'll come to your house. We'll check you out. No, you don't need to go to the ER for it. Uh, here, we'll draw some cultures, we'll swab a culture, a paramedic can certainly do that, and put it in a bag to send to the lab, and uh, in the meantime, here's a broad-spectrum antibiotic to start, uh, this is what our protocol is to give to you while we're waiting for the cultures. Yeah, something like that, I think, is totally feasible, and I think would have a lot of yeah. value, but this whole, like, uh, I think that we should be like nurses and PAs, there needs to be something for us, like, I don't think we're there yet. I think there needs to be something unique, certainly. Maybe that's something where we disagree. I think there certainly has to be something unique to EMS, mm -hmm. uh, and it should not be NPs or PAs because people are always describing, oh, well, we have so many people leaving the field. Well, no shit. Uh, bad working conditions, a bunch of mental health crap coupled with not having too much upward movement. Of course, that's going to happen. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, I think we're agreeing, though. Uh, there's, yeah. a, there's a time and place, and – what I don't want is the folks that are a little bit too squirrely getting a hold of this, because then I think we go into what you're describing, which is just ineffective utilization. Yeah, and you know, like I know you did your your, your episode on this. Uh, I was back in September, um, and you brought up a great point. Like I'm I'm on board with paramedic practitioners. I would love to have another level to move towards. Um, you know, I I try and um, educate myself. I try and you know go find. You know, I went to critical care when I'm not even in a critical care job just because I wanted to expand my not my mind. Mm -hmm. But what you brought up is that we don't even have a good basis in most places around the country. Most initial education is not preparing people to do the basic job. And so how can we expect that then some of these programs create a master's level course that is going to push them through just like they pushed them through the initial training. And now we're going to get this 
knowledge skill dilution at this quasi higher level of provider. To be clear, that's not a reason to not do it. That yeah, that's it's, a it's reason not. for us to be more critical on how we do things, right? Yes. And so also uh, it's very and, critical look at how we do it all together. Exactly. Like how do we do the higher level stuff? Let's figure out how we do the lower level initial training and how do we make that good provider that, hey, they don't want to move on to this thing, but they can still do a damn good job. And mm-hmm. they're the person that you want showing up for you, your family, or as Mike said, the guy that's helping them out with the family that's crushed underneath the 18 wheeler that needs RSI. I mean, and like, part of this is, and I, I would love to get your guys' thoughts on this. I mean, we're still going off of like a DOT national guideline. Right. I mean, sure, has clinical input from physicians and I mean, but like, well, obviously, uh, a, an agency that allots highway funding should be covering EMS. I mean, that's just logical. You know, I mean, I, you spend so much time on the road, so it makes sense. Right. We're just so stuck in the past. Department. Like that damn white paper in 1966 talked about highway injuries and God damn it, we're still functioning off of that logic. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, when everything else in pre-hospital, don't get me wrong, that white paper, I want to frame and pull, put on my wall. That was huge for us. But damn, it's been so t- long since we, you know, uh, EMS is not only these tra- trauma, right? Um, yeah. And I don't know, man. I just. Uh, well, listen I, here. I, yeah. I'm getting a text from my wife asking if I'm going to cook the kids dinner. Oh, man. Well, it, <laughs> yeah, that that might be uh, our sign to finish up, man. Yeah, I love this. It's great. Yeah, I love this. And the original the, the original uh, what is, uh, basis of this episode we covered and then we went As right well. into yeah. Oh yeah. That is we solved, then we solved the world's problems. <laughs> um, Dude, this has been a pleasure, man. You can come back anytime. I think it'll be cool. Oh no, likewise. I'd love to have you guys on. This is great. I thoroughly yeah. enjoyed this. I definitely you... would really want Ken and uh Cody here. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, they, for they, sure. They would they would have loved this. I they're gonna hate having not been here. I know that. Oh no, I'll totally come back. I mean we could even meet up sometime. I can drive to Maryland. It's only an hour away. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hold on. Well, let's finish out the show and then let's talk real quick. Right, I don't cool. want to. I don't want any of your personal details recorded. No I'm kidding. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> Josh, you want to finish well, this out, bud? Yeah, sure. So, uh, Mike, thank you for coming on tonight. Thanks for um, having me. Great talk. Uh, we yeah. went down a massive rabbit hole that is massively important, honestly. Um, for all of our listeners out, listeners out there, I uh, hope you're having a good evening, good morning, good night, afternoon, whatever time you're listening. Uh, make sure to follow. Our Instagram, Alert Medic One. Always new content coming out, reels, uh, posts. Um, make sure if you're not already, which you should be, you're following OK Medic Podcast as well, World OK as Medic uh, on Instagram as well, YouTube, TikTok, uh, yeah, Spotify, everywhere. He's just he's got his fingers everywhere. Um, give him a listen, give him a follow, give him a watch. Uh, but yeah, thanks for tuning in. Be safe. Have a good night. Good evening. Good morning. See you.